Fatality Fitness Podcast, covering everything from fitness, health, and nutrition with your host, Matthew Smiley, covering top topics and answering all your fitness Q&As with featured guests. Hello and welcome to the Fatality Fitness Podcast. And on this episode, I have strength and conditioning coach, uh, Reese Silva, who is based down in Leeds and works with a number of MMA fighters and boxers. So, Reese, tell us a bit about yourself. So, yeah, as Matt said, thanks for having me on as well, by the way. Looking forward to it. Um, so, yeah, as I said, my name's Reese Silva. I work with the people that do follow me, probably know me better as Elite Step, which is the strength conditioning brand that I um, work under. Been doing it for quite a while now, sort of unofficially and officially, I guess, um, earning money and then from it in the last few years. Um, I'm a Londoner, so from East London. Grew up there, went to Union Leeds, and pretty much been here ever since, really. Um, had a couple of years where I lived out in New Zealand for a while, um, but Leeds has pretty much been home now for the last 10 years, uh, minus that two-year gap. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's sort of me, my background, and, and stuff like that. So what's your past experience in fitness? What, what made you get started into fitness and then take an interest into kind of coaching it? Yeah, do you know what? Like, as I said in the intro, like, I've been doing this sort of unofficially for a long time. Um, a lot of the time, not even realising what it was. Um, so I played football growing up at a good standard. Um, so I was always interested in ha- how people could train to become better at the sport. Um, for those of you that know me, I'm not blessed with height or, or anything like that. So I was always trying to get as strong as I could so that my height or lack of height wouldn't be an issue playing football. So I was always kind of from a young age researching uh, different strength training, uh, how I could get faster, fitter and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then from there, when I went, got a bit older and gym became more of a thing. Um, at the time, it was trying to get bigger and um, put on some muscle mass um and then through training friends at the boxing gym and preparing myself for fights doing my own strength conditioning so just through the years from sort of teenagers all the way to now i've been trying different styles of strength training and a lot of the time not even realizing that was what it was um and then when i started boxing myself that's when i really got into it um had a look to you know, what all the pros were doing and, and trying to take ideas from stuff they'd post online and blah, 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 blah. And here we are now, sort of a strength conditioning coach and sort of what I do to a day-to-day basis, as you said, with MMA guys and, and boxing guys. Yeah, just tell us a bit about your experience with working with fighters. So who have you currently got on the cards at the moment and um, what are they expecting from them? Yeah, so at the minute, I think off the top of my head, I've got 15 guys well 14 guys and one girl um through boxing mma and nicola's actually kickboxing um i think the split's pretty much 50 50 now so i think i've got seven boxers seven mma and as i said nicola's done a bit of kickboxing and she's done actually one in um october time called lefe i think i pronounced it right which was a weird kind of bare knuckle boxing kickboxing style i must admit i was watching it and i didn't really have a clue what was going on so that was interesting (laughs) yeah um but yeah so some of the names you guys might recognize i work with um mark dekesi from ufc um mick learmonth that's a leeds boxer um the edwards brothers um dalton smith who's obviously at the same gym 
uh, Levi Kinsiona, who's at the same gym as well. They're kind of like the uh, the main guys that I, I work with that would be sort of recognisable by name. So how did that actually come about? You've, how have you uh, kind of worked with these kind of names and kind of built up your reputation for there? Yes, yeah, so it started, um, I guess, as I mentioned in the intro, when I was living out in New Zealand, that's kind of where I was like, right, I've been doing this for quite a while now, I really enjoy it. I want to take it seriously and start up on my own. I don't really want to work for anyone else. I want to make a career of this. Um, so when I came back, I relocated to Leeds. Um, and that's kind of where Elite Step really took off and, and started. It's When I got to Leeds, I remember the first week or so or something like that, I literally spent the whole week on my bike riding from gym to gym, um, searching boxing gyms around, MMA gyms, texting everyone, seeing if there was any fighters that wanted um, – strength and conditioning um using instagram which is a great thing with social media now like it gives us the chance to be able to reach out to people a lot more easily than we ever could um and it just so happened that one of the guys that got back to me was uh, p from golden team um so he ran me up he's like yeah come down um so when i met him had a little meeting with him um and he was like, all right cool sound sounds good do a little sort of trial session with uh, mick um and two years later sort of still working with him so he, he was my first one um, and then about five months after that, Mark got in touch with me via Instagram again. Um, and they were my first two that I had pretty much up until 18 months ago, um, where I was like, right, I don't want to train anyone else apart from fighters now. Um, so I had to kind of get everything in place to allow me to do that. Yeah, that's kind of the thing that I love about your story is like, obviously you've came over done the kind of personal training side of it, find out your niche and what you kind of want to get into, and mm. then you've kind of went from like a commercial kind of gym, I don't want to say obviously this one's more kind of private, it's obviously still a public gym, but obviously more tailor-made to kind of your style of, of training that you want to do. Um, tell us a bit, a bit about that story, like um, what was your worries of kind of leaving the kind of commercial, having these kind of clients that you had that... Um, had you kind of secure money to kind of leave that and kind of follow your passion and strength and conditioning and what you're kind of currently doing at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So I was based when I, when I relocated. It started that I um, went to Pure Gym and it was basically just a low risk option. Um, obviously, coming up to a new place, I had a certain amount of money saved. Um, I, I think I had one month's worth of rent saved up, um, so I used that and going to Pure Gym meant I could do classes. Um, as in teach the classes, I wouldn't have to pay rent to use the gym. So it was like a low-risk option. So that's the reason I went there. But I think the commercial gyms, gyms on the whole take quite a lot of um, – get a lot of stick. But for me, as a starting point, it, it was great. Like it, it taught me uh, a lot about myself. I could learn about coaching. I could trial out my processes, what worked, what didn't, and refine everything before to sort of get me ready for the next step. Um, I, I was there for about a year, I think. Um, yeah, about a year. And then I was kind of at the point where I was like, right, I've got Mick, I've got Mark. I want to do that full time. Um, researched my gyms. Graft House was the one I wanted to go to. Um, and then it was a case of just basically taking the plunge. Um, you, I guess you could say you kind of just rolled the dice a little bit. Um, again, I was in a position where I had one month's worth of rent um to get me through worked out all my finances how many clients were coming with me um where that would leave me and all that sort of stuff sorted it all out um and but to be honest with you the first two weeks moving over was an absolute nightmare um i accounted for 
if five people left me and bye bye bar, but it turned out within the first two weeks, pretty much uh, about 80% of my clients left me because of travel. They said they couldn't do that regularly. Um, someone had to move home because they broke up with their partner. Literally everything that went wrong, uh, could go wrong, just went wrong. Yeah, wrong. Yeah. So, so I was in a position within two weeks of moving over. I was just like, damn, I've, got to make this work in the next four weeks because i don't have any more money saved for gym rent for house rent for bills so i literally had four or five weeks to get in everyone i needed in order to be able to live off of my off of my um job do you think that made you work harder towards it because obviously you had that kind of kind of risk yeah 100 percent. i think looking back not just on that situation but it's generally in life when you've got those um, situations where it's almost a little bit desperate, where you're desperate for something to work, I find that's when stuff does work. And I think while well, I've been looking a lot into that, and I think when you go back through all these successful people and the ones at the highest level in any sort of entrepreneurship or any sort of career, they're the ones who can work like they're desperate all the time, even when they're not. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm trying to work on because obviously at the time was desperate, smashed it, um, in terms of my work ethic because I had to and it's very easy to take your foot off the gas when you're a little bit more comfortable so I'm trying to trying to slowly and I'm getting there slowly but work in a way that I'm almost acting like I'm a little bit desperate for things to work on a more consistent basis and I think doing that can elevate you so much further in a year than you would just sort of cruising along. Yeah consistency is key and you can see that even with your your posts um being being consistent and putting out the right content and, and getting the right engagement so that obviously these other fighters can see your work out there. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's something I'm working on. Like for me, that so, social media doesn't come easy to me. I'm not a big fan of it. Like if it was wasn't for work purposes, I, I wouldn't be on any form of social media. Um, I'm not a big post my social life or, and stuff on on those platforms, but. On the flip side, it's a great tool. It's free marketing. Um, you can reach people that you wouldn't normally be able to reach or that you'd have to pay to reach. Um, and I think now those sort of social media platforms are making having your own career a lot easier than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go back. And can you tell me, um, so obviously when you got Mark, was that your first experience working with an MMA fighter? And then basically what's your experience been working with um, – a UFC fighter and being in the UFC kind of environment? Yeah, it was my first MMA, and I guess thrown in straight in at the deep end, yeah, straight yeah. into the UFC, which I, like, I, I realise now as well how fortunate a position that is. You know, like it's not an everyday thing to get your first MMA fighter being the UFC. Um, so really fortunate position. Um, but I'm a big believer in sort of you work hard and these things kind of fall into place for you. Um yeah. So I kind of just took it and ro rolled with it. And at the time when Mark got in touch with me, he was obviously coming off the back of uh, three defeats when he was out in America. So was reestablishing his team, and it was pretty much make or break time in his next fight. Um, he was at a point where people thought maybe he was going to get cut after losing three in a row, um, but he got given one more chance. So it was last chance to loom, really. He had to win that fight or, or it was going to be cut from the UFC. Um, as I said, got in touch with me on Instagram. He said, um, I remember the phone call actually, he was kind of, he rang me and he was like, oh, I've seen your stuff. Really, I'm looking to put my team together. I'd really like to work with you. Um, so we met up, had a chat and sort of started working together from there. Um, but as I said, like, that's not a usual circumstance to go from having no MMA athletes to having one in yeah, the UFC. Yeah. 
quite a jump yeah um so it was a lot of trial and error um a lot more time in the gym and myself trying out stuff uh, experimenting with certain exercises and um just trying to broaden my skills because boxing and ufc are on the surface of it are two similar sports but when you break it down you look at the physiological uh, requirements and the movement requirements is completely different they're two completely different sports yeah, but you've you've tried to expand your knowledge by going on these kind of as I said, you've seen you going on the the course with Phil Daru and obviously mm-hmm. try to gain more experience with MMA kind of what what kind of training methods and stuff that they use for for their fighters. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I'm a, I spend probably too much money on uh, on uh, upskilling, but I think it's something that you definitely have to do. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm a I definitely feel like a student, like. I, I, when I sit back and I look where I've come from, I know I am getting better, but every single day I feel like I'm not good enough for it. So I just want to learn more and more and more, um, which obviously keeps pushing me. Um, I think as soon as you start to think you know it all, that you're in a good position and you don't need to learn anymore, it's probably going to be the start of your downfall. Um, so going on those courses with people like Phil um, definitely helps me. It, it, it's funny as well because uh, Mark obviously used to do strength conditioning with Phil as well. Okay, uh, so I could speak to him about that a little bit. Um, and obviously he's he's killing it in America. And he's probably, I'd say, in, in MMA, he's probably the, the guy, go-to guy at the moment. Yeah. So to be able to spend a weekend um, learning from him and stuff like that is great. And with all those courses, I, I just try and take one or two things away that I can implement. Um, I think a lot of the time people make the mistake where they'll go on a course from someone that they've seen and they'll try and implement everything that he uses and make his style their style, and it just doesn't work. Doesn't work, um, yeah. You, I think you've got to pick and choose what fits into your principles and your values. And, and why I always try and um, take away is that if I can take one thing away that I can use with my athlete that improves their performance, then that's money well spent. Yeah, that's definitely the thing. It's like that minute 1% can make a big difference if you start making these wee small 1% changes. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Well, go on and explain uh, what's a day like. So what's what's a day like at Elite Step? Um... Do you know what? I'm trying to think of this. Let me try and say my days are so different, which is what I love about this job. Um, my days are so different. Like Tuesdays and Thursday mornings, I'm over in Sheffield at Steel City Gym. Um, Mondays, I'm doing a little bits and bobs on my other company that I run with one of my mates. Friday, I'm doing bits and bobs on another company I run with another one of my mates. Um, training myself, but. So I guess the easiest way, I'll just break down my week for you then. Just yeah, run break, through. Down, break so, down your week, yep. So Mondays is normally morning sessions, and then I go and work on my company called Bime, which is like a wellness company, um, doing all mindset training, stress reduction, all that sort of stuff for the corporate world. We'll do some work on that, and then I'll go and do a couple of afternoon sessions, and then I'll train myself. Tuesday morning, it's over to Sheffield. We'll get back from there at about midday. Um, and then I'll train myself usually maybe do some admin YouTube videos Instagram content for the week bye bye bar and then a couple of evening sessions Wednesday couple of morning sessions again and then we're doing um, some sort of seminar uh, with that buying company Um, so at the moment we're based in Harrogate so we've been there for the last six weeks doing two workshops Um, and then Wednesday's my early finish I'll go back to the gym do a couple of sessions train myself i started jiu-jitsu in the new year so i've been going to a couple of different gyms just doing that um and then wednesday's kind of like my midweek sort of uh, recovery day if you like uh, yeah thursday back to steel city and then afternoon again 
doing admin stuff, um, again, content, um, interviews like this, um, writing, reading, anything like that, and then a couple of evening sessions. And then Friday, just in the gym all day, pretty much. A couple on a Saturday, and then I try to just chill out. Um, but at the moment, it's pretty full on. Having three sort of different um, businesses means sort of my Friday evening, Saturday evening, Sunday evenings. I'm sort of sitting for a couple of hours doing some work for those and trying to get keep on top of things. Yeah, when we mentioned the kind of sessions there, let's let's dive in. Let's talk about the sessions. So. Mm. We're talking about strength and conditioning. If I was a new fighter coming to you, um, how would you? What would be your process starting with with a new fighter, and where you would take it from there? So just say, I'm in a twelve week training camp. Yeah, so I think one of the most important things I do from initial contact, um, and I have various contact points before I even start working with an athlete, simply because I want to. And this sounds like a word, weird phrase. I assume I want to almost assess them as a person. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that it's going to be a right fit before we even go into what they require from their sport and stuff like that. As a person, we need to click. Um, one, I need to, you need to believe that you're going to be the best you can be. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to believe they're going to be a world champion. Yeah. But if they say to me, I've got a white qualifier and I really, really want to be in the best shape as I can for that, then fine. Um, but we need to get on as well. I have to believe in you 100%. Um, because if I don't believe in you as a fighter, subconsciously or some way, shape and form, I'm not going to be able to give you 100% of my time and the amount of time that goes into these guys, both in sessions and programming and, and all that sort of stuff, I have to have to believe in you. So you need, to, you need to see if they're going to be a benefit to you and that you're going to be a benefit to them. You know? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The relationship has to be there, and I can honestly hand on heart say that every one of my fighters I have now that I class them more of friends, and anything they need from me that I'll do for them. Um, and I really, really, sort of, genuinely uh, hope, wish the best for all of them. Um, so it's, that's why I do that. Um, and then once we're into it, um, so we'll skip all that sort of middle part. So say if they're coming into the gym, it'll be first week or two is just purely assessments. So the first part they'll come in. We'll assess stuff like uh, mindset. I'll ask them about their goals, um, nutrition, sleep, all that sort of stuff, um, just to get a, a rounded idea of what they're currently doing, where the gaps are, um, and any sort of red flags that are sort of going to be um, something we need to touch on straight away. We'll do a little movement assessment in that first um, session, which will literally be um, running through sort of like a dynamic warm-up. So I'll add in some hops, some lunges, um, all that sort of stuff, just to see how they're moving. And you can get a good gauge of um, your athlete just from doing that. You can see whether they're more explosive or more endurance athlete just from that as well. Um, and then over the next couple of sessions, we'll do... Uh, some form of conditioning assessment, a strength assessment, just to get some numbers, just to see where they're at, to see, again, where the blanks are. Um, and then by the end of that sort of first week or so, we know where we are, we know where we need to be, and we can start working backwards in order to fill in the gaps. Yeah, so you, we were talking about when you were doing the assessment, kind of red flags, what kind of things would pop up? So the most common, um, I would say, is a lack of sleep. Um, sleep, something that 
I don't feel athletes are prioritizing enough. Um, often they'll stay up watching films and, and stuff like that, and then they're up early to fight as well. Yeah. Um, sorry to train, so they're not getting a good sleep basis, therefore not recovering as well, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I'd say the second most common thing I see is their training schedule is just too full on. Um, there's a lot of heavy sessions not many rest days, not many recovery sessions. So what I tend to do is during that first initial assessment, I'll tell them at the end, all right, what I want you to do this week is text me over what sessions you do on each of the days and how heavy they are. So I use a traffic light system. So if they're light, just send me over um, wrestling at green. If it's heavy, put a red. If it's medium, put a yellow. So at the end of that first week, I'll have their schedule with how hard it is. And I often see that a lot of that schedule is full with, with red sessions, which isn't optimal for recovery. It's going to lead to overtraining. Um, and that's often what I find that a lot of these guys are overtrained, especially in MMA, because there's so many discipline, disciplines involved that it's very easy to do too much. Yeah. Um, so let's dive in. We'll talk about the kind of methods of training that you that you use in your sessions. Um, let's talk about this. So let's go for the starter camp. So what me- kind of yeah. methods would you look from there? Um, obviously, let's talk about the kind of mobility issues and stuff that you may find as well before you start, obviously, camp. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's common knowledge that boxers struggle sort of overhead, Um and tight hips and stuff like that. But to be honest, a lot of my guys now, um, and I don't know whether it's because I'm working with a lot of younger guys or stuff like that, the mobility is not too bad. It's not too bad. Um, So it doesn't actually prevent them from doing too much, but we obviously have to be careful in terms of shoulders and stuff like that. So we'll work the hips, we'll work the shoulders, we'll work rotation through the spine. Um, I tend to find T-spine tends to be lacking in rotation a lot of the time. Um, So we'll touch on mobility stuff. But in terms of principles, well, I think one of the main things to point out is that the basics work with these guys. Um, A lot of these guys... They've been fighting since they were seven years old, but in terms of strength conditioning and in the weights room, they've got a relatively low training age. Yeah, it's kind um, of Yeah, so, you know, that's kind of a mistake people would make from the outside in is that they think, right, you've got a professional fighter, been fighting since they were 10 years old, they must be elite level in, in the weights room as well, where that's not always the case. Um, so the basics for those guys work. So just squatting, hinging, you know, unilateral push, pull, carry some heavy stuff and get your core nice and strong is going to work, going to get the, it's going to be enough of a stimulus to create an adaptation for those guys. Um, and then for the more advanced guys who've been doing it for a while, um, someone like Charlie, for example, he's been doing this strength conditioning for years now. So he's quite an advanced athlete we can then implement some uh, more advanced techniques that's going to just overload him a little bit more and, and keep him pushing in the right direction. Yeah, do you find that with a lot of the fighters that they maybe come into you and they say, right, I want to get stronger, I want to do this, and they've obviously been watching and people do strength conditioning on kind of social media. They yeah. see people lifting the kind of max effort, and then when they came on, they come in at you, they realise that they basically need to get the fundamentals in, in place before they do any of this. Hundred percent, yeah. It's um, not not so much an ego thing, but 
I think their the perception of how f- uh, strong they are is misleading because they fight, um, because they hit hard. They they assume that they're going to go in the room, uh, in the weights room and start lifting loads of heavy weights. Um, one of the most important things I try and outline to them from early doors is that we're never going to go and and push you right to your limits in the weights room. You know we. We have to keep in mind the whole training schedule. Yeah. There's no point in me getting them in and beating them in the gym if then they're going to spar or going to do some sort of boxing session in the evening and they're too sore to to train optimally. Um, the strength conditioning is not a priority above their boxing sessions. Their sports sessions are the most important thing. Yeah. So from a strength conditioning point of view, what we're trying to do is give them the, the smallest input to get the most results. And sometimes that means dialing back a little bit um, and not pushing them to, you know, a lot of the guys, they say to me, oh, I can, I can go more, I can go more. And I'm like, yeah, I know you can, but the risk reward, the, the amount of soreness you're going to get from going more compared, you know, all those effects of lifting that little bit more, it's not worth it. Let's stop there. Um, and you know, it's that famous saying we're, we're trying to stimulate and not annihilate them in the weights room. Yeah. Do you think that's the one of the hardest things is to kind of work out your schedule? As you said, working with MMA fighters, they might have like six different kind of skills yeah. they're trying to work on. You're trying to implement them, getting stronger and fitter for the fights. But obviously, as you said, prior to, priority at first is how they can basically get into their, their fighting sessions. Yeah, I mean, boxing-wise, I've been fortunate on that in that um, view that the two gyms I'm kind of uh, affiliated with and work closely with have both got great coaches that allow me to input my ideas without any kind of um, uh, reservations about it. They're really open. So Grant down at Steel City, he's always open to it. You know, he's always like, whatever you need, just do it. Just as long as we're all talking to each other, we're good. Um, and P at Golden Team, he's exactly the same. He'll be like, yeah, do your thing, as long as you're sort of just updating me. So we're all singing off the same page. It obviously gets a little bit more complicated in MMA because there is not just one coach you have to talk to. There's your grappling coach, there's your pad man, there's your head coach, there's your jiu-jitsu coach. You might go somewhere else for sparring. So in that way, it's hard to all be singing from the same hymn sheet but you try as best you can um it's something that i feel could be done better from what i've seen in the mma world that coaches could amongst themselves speak um more so um i've always had again had good relationships with the coaches and stuff like that but between themselves from coach to coach i think that communication line could definitely be improved so they know you know if we're not if we're on a deload week or something like that that we're all doing similar things and weeks, yeah. yeah and I mean obviously if we're all pulling the body in the same same direction we're going to get the best results let's talk let's go back and speak about these methods of training so obviously I've <laughs> when I've seen on social media a lot of the stuff that you do so what yeah. the what's the most important kind of methods that you put in place if you could pick one or two mm. um, kind of methods that you use in your training that you would use that, that you need to use the most um, and other ones may be affected because of the, like time or because of their schedule what what methods would you use the most yeah so I think to be honest with you I think the most important one um, what I try and implement is their conditioning program getting a solid um, conditioning program behind them because I feel like that's something that's not quite done right in a lot of the times um, on the boxing scale of things you know, people do their long, steady runs, which is great. They're building great aerobic capacity, but sometimes that's all they're doing. Yeah. And then on the MMA side of stuff, 
Um, because it's a younger sport, it's a lot more high-intensity stuff, so they're doing a lot more anaerobic work. Um, so what I see from the MMA guys is, in particular, that they've got a really good anaerobic um, systems, but their aerobic system could be better. Um, so in terms of that, I try and uh, program some aerobic power intervals, um, some slower, steady runs just to build an aerobic base, which is going to then help them with their anaerobic work. Um, and, and for the boxing side of stuff, it's trying to then, again, aerobic power, that's normally one that's not touched on as much. So I, I implement that and then more sort of alactic stuff as well. Um, because in both sports, the alactic stuff's massive. Um, a lot of the time, our knockouts, our stoppages come from the alactic system. So that's something we try and develop as well. So how, how would you work on trying to develop? Yeah, so... With that one, we break it down into two parts. So at the start of camp, we'd work more alactic power. So with that, we would do um, six to eight seconds of max effort. Um, and then we'd go into something like a minute's worth of active recovery, whether that's just like shadow boxing, um, just walking or anything like that. The, the six seconds explosive could be a sled push, rope sprints, med ball slams anything that's going to be max effort as we go through camp and we've built that power base what we're then trying to do is look at how we can uh, improve the capacity the alactic capacity allowing the fighter to throw his combos recover and continue to do that over the course of a fight um, so what we would do we'd start increasing the interval time and reducing the rest time week by week so we'd end up with then um, moving on to stuff like 12 seconds max effort with a 20 seconds active recovery. So over the course of the camp, we've gone from um, a work-to-rest ratio that's high to now closing that gap, and actually they're working really small work-to-rest ratios, which is then going to carry over to the fight in terms of being explosive, recover, be explosive, recover. And that's normally what you find is that it's the other way about. Like boxers do the long-distance running and miss this out. MMA mm. are more explosive and mystic in a long distance. So that's what we Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you put if you put them uh, together, they've got the perfect conditioning program. Yeah, they, um, they tend to be missing one or the other. And I think I was talking to someone about this the other day. I think it's just because MMA is a newer sport, a younger sport, so that it's more high intensity stuff. Um, and boxing's just got the culture of the long, steady runs. Um, so where we can, we're trying to, when we're looking at the conditioning program, we're trying to basically just fill the blanks. Um, and if they're not getting something in their sessions, let's give it to them. And if they're getting something in their sessions, let's not overload it. Let's just work on other stuff that's going to be more useful. Yeah, do you find that that's, that, that was the case with obviously boxers? That was the kind of method that always used. It was kind of old school kind of method. Do a million sit-ups and do 10-mile runs and, and forget about all these kind of short bursts. And other kind of, kind of core methods that you could use as well for strengthening the core stability? Yeah, for sure. It's a lot of, um, in terms of the core, they do a lot of sit-ups. Um, a lot of more um, aesthetic type core training yeah. for a guy who's trying to um, make their abs more visible, for example, rather than... Beneficial. Yeah, being yeah. efficient, using your core to stabilise the spine and to generate power, um, which is a slightly different way. So working those anti-movements, so the anti-rotation, anti-lateral flexion, anti-extension. Um, it was more sort of what someone who was going on holiday and wanted to make their abs more visible type stuff. Um, 
And in terms of like the runs, yeah, that's just a cultural thing. That's what boxers have done for so many years now. Um, so it's never something I'm going to tell them not to do um, because, yes, we, we've got our more, I've got my way of doing things and my beliefs, but at the same time, you've got an athlete that is used to doing something that you got to think of the psychological effects of running. You know, I know from fighting myself that doing my long steady runs is where I gauge my fitness yeah. and where I feel like my legs are getting conditioned and stuff like that. So if I tell one of my guys, right, you're not going to run over three miles now of this camp or four miles or whatever, they're just not going to do it. So we manage it around it. Um, and what I do is I try involve them in the process, tell them why I'm asking them to do certain things. And from there, we just manage the loads of those runs. So I kind of tell them, you know, fine going on your road runs, but let's just keep your heart rate at that sort of 130 mark and let's keep it to 45 minutes. Don't try and do any more than that. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about, so who's been kind of main influences for you and, and who's good to follow out there for content? for people that maybe want to improve and their kind of strength and conditioning and stuff, and who would you advise to kind of follow? Because obviously we've been on there through the guys at Boxing Science and the stuff they put out great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you mentioned Phil DeRue. Uh, you've mentioned Boxing Science. They're um, both doing some great stuff in obviously MMA and boxing as well. Um, and they would probably be my two top people i'd say go follow them check out their content um they're a lot better than myself at putting stuff online and making it look fancy as well um their youtube channels are great as well so for some as a starting point i would say definitely um go and and have a look at those guys and apart from that in terms of um if you're looking for there's loads of like mobility type pages as well squat university are great for yeah. helping with mobility i think they're one of the, the better pages their podcast is class as well um and actually one of one of my favorite podcasts at the moment i've been listening to is the fight science podcast yeah that was the, the that, one i asked you to send over the other day but in regards yeah, to sleep yeah. absolutely yeah it's a superb podcast that one it's mostly nutrition based and weight cutting for for uh, combat sports but they get some real intelligent guys on there like guys that are just so much more intelligent than i am and who just get me thinking you know you listen to one of those podcasts and you you come away with so much information which is great so i'd say as a starting point those two guys and a couple of those podcasts are definitely a, a good place to go any other kind of podcasts you listen to babe or kind of books that you would advise people to listen to even for the it doesn't even need to be for the strength and conditioning stuff even for the kind of mindset stuff that you do with your company yeah, so do you know I'm I'm massive on that, and it's something I implement with my guys as well. Um, you know, boxing is a mental sport, and getting them physically prepared for it is only one one part of the puzzle. You've seen many many fighters get in the ring who are in great shape and have trained hard, but mentally they're just not there and they fall apart. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm big into that, and what, one of my main things actually when um training my boxes is, is trying to implement that lifestyle stuff as well yeah. um so i read a lot of mindset books um because when you break it down like what you're doing in everyday life for these fighters they're going to carry over into the ring you know if they're going about everyday life and they're getting frustrated at certain things and when they're frustrated they can't control their emotion and and they end up you know doing something like if someone cuts them up in the car and they slam on the horn and start swearing that's a habit yeah. And if they can't control that in life, there's no way they're getting in the ring against someone who's winding them up all, all fight week and able to control their emotions. They're going to react. They're going to stiffen up. They're going to get tense. They're going to get thrown off their game plan, and they're going to hand the fight to the other guy. So 
what I'm trying to do with my guys a lot of the time is teach them life skills and teach them these habits that they can then create new habits, create new life skills, and that will carry over into the ring. Um, the ring in and out your life inside and outside the ring isn't different it's one um, and that's just something that I'm trying to implement with my guys a lot of the time um, but going back to your question in terms of what I'd recommend you know some of my favorite guys in terms of mindset are Ed Myler, um Tom Bellew I think his name is pronounced I'm not completely sure but he's got a YouTube um channel which is class um it called impact theory he's also got a podcast which is really good um gary v's class really enjoy his stuff um and tony robbins as well they would probably be my top three three four guys when you were talking about uh, the kind of other factors out with like mm-hmm. obviously family life and stuff can get in the way but what, do you take mm-hmm. all this from your kind of biofeedback and what do you what kind of questions you're asking on your biofeedback do you use the heart rate variability yeah, so we got various tools, um, all of which give us a little bit of insight. You know, we never use just one of those and jump to conclusions. Yeah. But if I'm looking at three or four different things and they're all bringing out little red flags, then we know something's going on. So in terms of tracking, um, I'll do a jump test every second session of the week um, just to see where it compares to like a rolling average. Um, I'll do wellness scores, um, especially in the last six weeks of camp. Um, we'll keep those more regular. Um, used to try and do it all the time, but to get guys to send me over their scores every morning, when, especially when they're not in camp, it's just not going to happen. So we keep that a little bit more concise. So we monitor sleep, energy, motivation on that one. Um, heart rate variability and, and resting heart rate, something we track as well. And then just knowing your athlete, um, I, I, I can tell within 30 seconds of seeing someone walk up to me in the gym, what kind of mood they're in, whether they're tired, um, you know, are they normally bouncing and making jokes? And then on a certain day, they're quiet. Um, are they normally really enthusiastic and all of a sudden they're not really talking? They look a bit down, you know, you have to know your athlete. It's all good having these tracking um, things in place and they'll give you some of the data, but just having your coach and I and knowing your athlete and knowing them as a person is going to help massively and probably be your biggest um, insight into how they're feeling. Let's talk about your athletes. So what have they got coming up? I know you obviously it seems to be quite busy with fighters that you've got at the moment. So if you forget anybody, um, I understand. But what have you got coming up and what fights have they got? Yeah, do you know what? I've actually got a board just up there. You can see it just in the back. <laughs> Keep track. And it's, got, it's got everyone's names and fight dates on. So if I do forget everyone, I can get a glimpse over my shoulder and make sure that uh, no one's going to get offended. Um, but yeah, busy times. Um, as I said, I've got 15 fighters on my books at the minute. So we started the year last night, actually, um, with Levi. Big fight for him, actually. He was really happy he got the win, you know. He got um, stopped in his last fight in November. Um, and it, it was a big fight for him. And he'd and he done so well. And I was really proud of his performance, fought brilliantly. Um, and the way he's handled the whole situation has just been class. Like, uh, said to him last night, I was like, your mindset has just been absolutely spot on. Um, a lot of people may have shied away from what happened and made excuses, but he took it on the on the chin um, and didn't make any excuses and, and got the win last night. So onwards and upwards for him now. Um, what we got? We got a break next week, and then the weekend after we got Mick Learmonth out in Leeds, so he's looking to go 11 and 0, I think, and then hopefully moving on to titles after that. Um, that's actually a new weight now. We're making the drop from cruiserweight to light heavyweight, which has been interesting. Um, so I've actually been picking uh, Scott's brains about that as well, yeah. just to make sure I'm on the uh, right track. Um, the next day we got Dalton Smith out in Manchester. Um, 
And then we've got amateur bouts coming up in March and April. I've got Mally and Collison both making their debuts in April, turning over. Um, who else? I'm actually going to glimpse over my shoulder now and see who else we've got. Your Marco got, as well. Yeah, I've got Mark on the 21st of March in UFC London. I've got Louis fighting the week before that on Cage Steel, making his pro debut. Um, and then Nicola is fighting in April time, um, which should be a big fight. Um, Charlie's out on the 18th of April um, at York Hall. And then Sonny's awaiting fight date now. Should be around May time, something like that. Um, so busy times. As I said, it's kind of just like a, a rolling ball now. As soon as we get through that batch, the next person's in for their next fight. So, But as I say, it's, it, it doesn't really seem like busy times to me. It's kind of what I'm in this job for, so can't complain too exciting, much. Yeah, exciting times. Can you tell us how people could get in touch with you or follow for your content? Yeah, for sure. So I'm on Instagram, um, at elite.step, I believe it is. Um, I'm on Twitter. Just started getting back on Twitter, actually. So that's at Elite Step. Um, and I have just started a YouTube channel, which is, again, at Elite Step. So they can find me. They are most uh, vocal on Instagram and in the YouTube as well. So that's where you can find me. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll get this wrapped up. I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and answering the questions. And we're looking forward to seeing what happens with your fighters over the next few months. Obviously, busy times. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it as always speaking to you. Um, and I'm sure we'll uh, I'll keep listening out to future episodes of the podcast as well. No worries at all. Thanks very much for your help. All right, mate. Take it easy. Bye.